Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? On the podcast today, we have Chandini, the founder and CEO of OrcOne. They are a fintech platform crowdsourcing machine learning solutions for financial companies. They empower their community of students, scientists and hackers across the world to build solutions for big business. Chandini has a fascinating background growing up in India and then learning mechanical engineering at university before she worked for some big banks in India. She then went across to America and studied some more engineering, got into some deep functional theory of molecular dynamics, and then she went on to become a trader on index volatility spread trading and general derivatives trading until she then left her job to build Orquan and she built her own AI solutions for financial problems, which were the foundation for the Orquan platform that exists today. As always, such an honor to host a podcast and talk to people so incredibly intelligent. Her brain is clearly operating at five times the speed of a normal human. I quickly realized that I had no place attempting to sound like I was on her level. And instead, I just tried to ask insightful questions, really. If you're the sort of person that likes to listen to your podcasts at a faster speed, you might want to turn down your settings because Chandini is possibly the fastest talker ever. Her word per minute rate must be insane. I tried using the Google Voice to text um, service and literally half of the podcast it just thought was just noise and it couldn't decide what the words were. But anyway, that is uh, enough of me introducing the podcast and now we can listen to it. Hopefully you have changed your settings or be prepared to be just blown away. So machine learning has positively impacted many industries, but in finance, the effect can be monumental. Quantitative funds have more than doubled their assets under management over the last four years, and they have consistently outperformed discretionary funds, which means more and more companies should be looking towards data-based decision-making. But on the other side, the supply of data scientists who can actually build out these models and deliver data science solutions is still relatively small. And this massive lack of talent makes our clients come to us for their data science and machine learning needs. We're a data science platform for financial services. We take our clients' machine learning problems and convert them into pure data science problems. This way, we translate problems that people from finance-specific domain can understand into something that a broader data science community can understand. Our community of data scientists, of over 10,000 data scientists who come from some of the most prestigious universities and biggest tech companies in the world, compete on our platform to solve our clients' problems. Compared to hiring a single in-house data scientist, our clients can now make decisions using solutions that combine hundreds of highly accurate models. Since coming to Techstars, we've worked with three quantitative trading giants, Optiver, Maven, and FlowTraders, and we have just recently closed three pilots with two big asset managers who collectively manage over a trillion dollars. Wow, living like a pro. It's exciting. So how did you get into solving these problems for people? Because it sounds like you're doing some massive scale in terms of numbers. How did you know the need was there and that you could satisfy it or solve these problems? Yes, this comes from what I used to do before this. So I used to work as a derivatives trader at market-making company in Chicago called Optiver. 
I did that for about three years. And when I started with them, my team was a completely discretionary team. So two very senior guys making decisions completely based on experience and intuition and gut. We had these six giant monitors in front of us and we were constantly just watching them to see what's happening here and what's happening here and what's happening here and making big decisions based on that. And when I started, it didn't seem like the most efficient way to do it, especially because I had an engineering background. So combining that with what we were doing, started making our input signals more objective. So instead of visual, making them into numbers. And then once we did that, we realized we could do more interesting things like predictive analysis, predicting prices, and then when to enter, when to exit. And then in a year, we went from being very discretionary manual team to something that was completely automated. And that was my first exposure to quantitative trading. And I saw one, I realized that a lot of the problems that we were solving to get towards automated data-based decision-making were just math problems. So as a trader, my experience is important in saying this finance problem can map into this math problem. Then once I can do that, the math problem is something that a large number of people who don't understand finance at all can solve. I also saw how powerful making consistent systematic decisions can be. Because my last full year as a trader, we were supposed to make about 6 million on the team, ended up making 13 just because we were way more consistent with our decision making. So just combining those two learnings, the premise was going forward, more and more companies will want to make decisions that are based on data and based on quantitative models, but there won't be enough talent to do it. So how do we serve that demand? And there's not that many people who understand finance, data science and math, but there's a lot of people who just understand math and very talented mathematically, analytically, quantitatively. If we can translate problems into their language, which we're able to do because of my past experience, then there's probably something there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I was going to ask, how did you then go from seeing that there's a problem and turning that into a business? How did you find the people to help you solve that problem and sell this solution to people? Yeah, so that realization happened. I quit my job, started doing something, just me hacking on my laptop. I had a friend in India who helped me do a basic version of the website. And I did a lot of data science stuff. And we did one competition just to test it out to see if there is even a demand. Like, can people actually solve problems if you abstract out finance and just make them into pure machine learning problems? Got a 1,400 people registered to participate. And the solutions that we got were really good with some really high quality people. So then we figured there is something in here. Started reaching out to companies to see if there's demand. Around that time, I moved back to India and my co-founder is my younger brother. So he moved back to India. He started helping me out with some stuff. Then he joined in as full-time as CTO. And then we started making some revenue. So we decided to just pursue it, hired some people in India to help us develop the platform. How did you get the 1,400 people signed up? Did you do a lot of marketing or did you know the right people? Did you use some specific channels? I reached out to the university that I went to. It's a network of universities that's called IITs. There's seven of them. So I reached out to their career center saying, we'll help your students practice for upcoming interviews and quant funds and trading companies and such. And then I convinced my previous employer, Octaver, who's based out of Amsterdam, and they don't traditionally recruit from India if they found someone that was good to interview and recruit them through the competition. And then I used that heavily as a marketing tactic. Nice. Did you have any major setbacks along the way? Yeah, quite a few. So we did the first competition that was in March of 2017. And then nothing basically happened until September. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. This was my first time doing anything outside of finance. So I was trying to do everything at the same time. It was pretty bad. And I was a solo founder. There was no team. So I was trying to build something, a Python toolbox. I was trying to do some marketing, trying to go to some conferences, completely aimless. And then in September, I looked back and I said, I've made no progress. For those six months, I'm still at the same exact point where I was in March, where I have no validation. I have no customers. I have no revenue. I have no team. 
in trying to get some customers the first few people you were offering this to for free to see will trading companies want to use solutions from a third party and will they want to give their data out to a bigger community of people we wanted to validate those assumptions we were giving them our solutions for free some of them worked some of them didn't work which wasn't great and then when we decided to convert them back into paid customers there wasn't that much because free customers to making paid if you offer something yeah. for free they'll never pay for it okay so do you think the process of trying all those different things was useful to learn what you should be doing or do you think you could have given yourself some advice at the start of like what you needed to do yes now knowing everything that i know if i had to do another startup i would do it differently i would invest time into market research even though it's the boring part and if i had actually done some market research talked to more people instead of diving straight into doing stuff i probably would have saved 9 months of my time at least definitely that validate your assumptions before have some sort of target in mind where you want to be in 3 months 6 months 9 months instead of we'll see how it goes we'll see as it comes Do you wonder if you'd done that you might have been more likely to give up if you'd set yourself targets that you hadn't been achieving but having 6 months of no exact target like failing was okay because you didn't have the targets or do you think I think it's fine if you don't achieve targets when we came to Techstars we came with some very aggressive ambitious targets of what we wanted to achieve we didn't get to all of them but at least all the efforts that we were putting in were towards something mm. someone asked me to come speak at a conference sure i'll do it organize this workshop sure i'll do it because what am i doing it for to get more users but is it actually getting me more users is it actually helpful yeah like you're saying for setting ambitious targets if you have 10x goals it's really good because then if you get halfway there that's actually the really impressive whereas if you just have ambitious goals yeah i mean if you achieve all of your goals you were clearly not ambitious enough and if you have spare time you don't want to feel good about yourself at least i don't want to feel good about myself Do you think in some ways that's a really good attitude but in other ways it's slightly depressing as you because then nothing's ever good enough and you can't relax and say I've done enough but that's what I am as a person mm. I am never satisfied if I achieve a goal it's like what's next yeah I'm the same do you think because of that you had to be an entrepreneur then I think so yeah when i was working i was happy it was a great job it paid really well the environment was great the company is great the people were amazing but at some point i was like this is comfortable like i know what i'm doing i'm doing well i can continue to do well it doesn't really require that much extra effort from me now i was challenged but i wanted to be charged more and that's one thing that i really like i can set my own targets and goals and i'm not constrained by anything it's for me to achieve whatever i can yeah i really like it and if i'm working for someone else there's basically a definition of what i'm doing which means you can employ someone to do it that i don't necessarily need to be doing it whereas if i'm doing my own thing no one else is going to do it so at least i'm creating something that wouldn't have happened otherwise so do you feel like you have a need to do things that are just different or is it more just setting yourself bigger challenges it's more about just doing something that i feel like it changed something in the world something's mm. different because of me that's a part of it and the other part is setting myself constantly bigger and bigger challenges Cool. Okay, so on that subject, what does the growth mindset mean to you? How do you always make yourself grow? Is it just with challenges or are there other ways in life that you approach? For me personally or as a company? For you. Setting new challenges is one part of it. So constantly trying to outdo yourself and saying, "I'm um, did I do better than what I did last time? Have I achieved more than even what I expected of myself?" But also learning new things constantly. Every year I feel like I know something more, I know something new. In that sense I've grown. I'm actually searching what new do I want to do next because I haven't done anything new this year because of all of this. Yeah, it's good to have three different areas I've heard of things that you're learning in. So if, if something goes wrong, you can still feel good about the fact mm-hmm. that you got much better at doing crossfit or something else. If you have all eggs in one basket of the business and you have a really bad month, you get super depressed, but if you're feeling good about your diet and your exercise or other things, 
off on is 80% of my focus. Mm. But yeah, 10% is like, I need to reach a certain level of fitness. And 10% is like, I need to travel more. I need to visit these many countries or something like that. Yeah. Cool. So do you do a lot of travel for Aquan? I love traveling. I get bored if things are static and similar. So in that sense, I travel a lot. For Aquan also, we go to newer universities to get those people on our platform and trying to do more meetups and more conferences to get more people on the platform. Cool. Okay, so let's go a bit into the future. What do you think is the world of finance going to be like in five years' time? That's a difficult one. Okay, the world of finance. I'll preface that with, I think a lot of people think finance is very tech-heavy, but it's actually not. Even if you go to the biggest hedge funds, discount the quantitative ones, people are still doing stuff on Excel. It's ridiculous. Why do people do things on Excel? Why do people not use all this information that is available in the world and they're still doing things by intuition and experience? Even email systems or communication systems, all very legacy in the biggest banks. And I think in the last few years, there's been a huge fintech wave. I obviously can speak from investing because that's where my experience is. But even in general, like when I was looking at other startups my other friends are doing is just trying to bring newer technologies and newer best practices and all of that to finance. One thing that I think will happen in five years time is there will be a lot less humans in making decisions. So things will still be driven by human intuition because you can't completely remove that, especially because the way markets work and the way investments work, it's very non-deterministic. Things can happen in the future that have never happened in the past. You can have an algorithm that learns on all the past trends and making all the inferences when it sees something similar. But what if something completely different happens, like a flash crash happens or the recession happens, a completely, completely new environment? But I think a lot of humans will be very heavily assisted by algorithms. Will the humans be making errors based on the fact that half things are still being controlled by computers and trying to co-run the system will mess things up? I think it'd be like 80% of the things are being run by computers and there's a human just sitting on top of it making sure everything is going okay. Okay. The role of the robo-advisor would be huge? Or yes. do you think more like just automated trading and humans setting it? Automated trading just means end-to-end, you get data from the exchange, you make a decision and you send it back to the exchange, right? That's fully automated. Then there can be parts of it, so you get data based on that machine gives you some suggestions. You decide which ones to implement and you put that into the next system. The next system then gives you suggestions on how to allocate your capital. You can take it or discard it, you send it to the next system. The next system then decides how to actually execute the trades that you want to execute. So if I want to buy 10,000 stocks of Apple right now, do I do it all in one go? Do I do it 5,000, 5,000? Do I do it 1,000 at a time? Do I do it over five days? All of that, the system decides. So there's different parts to it. The robo-advisory part is recommending which trades to make and how much capital to allocate to it. That's one part of it. The other part is the execution. Execution actually is pretty much automated almost everywhere. Also, more and more people are trying to incorporate as much automation as they can into it. Okay, cool. What do you think will happen in 20 years' time? It's exciting, but it's almost impossible to say. What do you want to happen in 20 years' time? So I would think we're at 99% automation, but then I'm conflicting myself because if we are at almost full automation, that means it's just machines trading against each other and we'll just have a stable state because everything is perfectly predicted. So yeah, hard to say. What do you think the role of cryptocurrencies will be playing in the next five, 10 years? I'm not so sure about cryptocurrencies and what role they'll be playing. I won't say I'm a believer. I won't say I'm against it. I'll just say I'm unsure. It needs to be seen where it evolves. I do think more and more things will be distributed instead of being centralized like they are now. More security, more safekeeping. Okay, cool. Last year, with all the ICOs going on, were you tempted to try and do an ICO for Arcoin instead of doing traditional funding? 
at some point a lot of my friends were purchasing a lot of new coins and i was tempted at participating in icos but the coin needs to be associated with something right what is the value like you pay it to a dollar or bitcoin or whatever it is but the coin actually signifies something of value on the platform and for a lot of the icos the coins just don't make sense like, i don't understand what exactly am i buying and i didn't think we could offer something like that for either so what would you say have been your biggest lessons and tips for getting investment what have you found hard The biggest 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 tip is talking to as many people as you can. It's like the more people you reach out to the more likely you are to find someone who believes in you. After Techstars, I spoke to about 80 people. I was talking to everyone who reached out because you never know where like the interest comes from or they might make a good intro for you. It's practice for me. Sometimes they ask question I have the answer prepared because someone else has asked me that question before. So, I've traveled all over London because I'm just going to take all the meetings that I can. What do you think was the hardest question that people asked you for you to be able to answer? I don't think it was hard in terms of being able to answer it was hard in terms of being able to make them understand because when people don't come from the world of finance they can't see the scale of the problem so a lot of VCs who invest in enterprise software SaaS software there's not that many hedge funds and asset managers in the world so the first question would be would people outsource it to a third party and it's not really outsourcing what we're trying to build is fully automated SaaS platform but this is so proprietary would they want to do it on a third party software so you have to educate your investors because they don't come from the area from the domain and then the amount of money that funds make is so much more compared to what tech companies make so if you can demonstrate value they are going to be willing to pay so much more compared to where you can price anything for a tech company do you think you also had issues yourself on knowing exactly what the exact vision was or was it more just not being able to say it simply before coming to techstars i had like the five year where we want to get to what we are building and i think that's where techstars helped a lot clearly defining where we are getting to and how we're getting there by the time we came to actually raising which was after techstars a lot of those like the vision wise question what are you building where are you getting how are you going to get there were pretty clear because we'd gone through that so many times there's a good saying it's easy to make things complicated it's hard to make things simple i agree if you had heard me describe my business the first day of techstars i was depressed because the first two days of mentor madness where you speak to a lot of mentors like 10 mentors every day the people were just not getting it what we were actually building we were just making it too complicated i was talking too much in finance jargon i was assuming that the person in front of me knows too much and then it was back to the base assume they know nothing like assume you're explaining it to a child how would you do it okay so what is the biggest risk you have taken quitting my job I mean the kind of money that you make as a trader is insane it's like seven figures and above and it's a job that i like it's a company that i like and leaving all of that for something completely unknown at that time i didn't even have an idea in my mind i was just leaving because i wanted to do something of my own like the idea will come the team will come everything will come if i don't do it now i will probably never do it because i will get way too comfortable in this and i will not be able to get mm. out of it so let's leave now and we'll see what happens Yeah, that's really good because you definitely tie yourself into needing the money, even though it's ridiculous. You just get used to that security, and the first six months, just cutting back and saying, "Okay, now I'm living off my savings." And even in 2017, sometimes I was approached by a lot of people to interview with them, and I was approached by a lot of companies. The offers were very, very lucrative. Still being able to say no, still having this conviction, especially in 17 when things weren't going well, I didn't know where the company was going, if anywhere at all. Yeah, it takes a lot of balls because I can definitely imagine some crazy offers going on. What's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? There's a few. I met someone at a meetup in India 
We became acquaintances because we were connected in the data science world. And then at the start of this year, we had applied to the Barclays Techstars program, which we didn't get into. And then we applied to an accelerator in Amsterdam, which we did get into. And this person who I knew from a meetup, I asked him what his opinion was. And he said, I don't think you should join the accelerator in Amsterdam. I think you should do regular Techstars and try there. Yeah, but you know, we didn't get in the first time. What are the chances we get in now? And then he offered to talk to Eamon, the MD. And he did talk to Eamon. He said some really kind things about us. Talking to Paul made it more clear that this is a good team and we should take it in. And he didn't have to do it at all. It was just out of good mm. spirit. Cool. Nice. What's one quality you want to improve at? I micromanage too much. I have difficulty letting go. Right now, there's some parts of the code base that I shouldn't be looking at. But every week, I have this habit of going and seeing what comments have been made, what has changed. I know that I need to let go. At some point, things are going to get beyond where I know exactly every nitty-gritty of what's happening. It's already getting to that point. And it starts bothering me. Why do I not know? When did this feature get added? When did this happen? When did that happen? And it starts bothering me when I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's like taking a bit of a step back and assessing what is the role of you in the company and what's the most useful. It's a hard one to let go, but often things can scale much faster. Especially when you've been a founder at the start, right? I knew exactly everything because everything was being done by me. And now when there are things that happen that I don't know, I'll randomly start talking to a developer and my co-founder will be like, it's not your job anymore. You don't have to micromanage him. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, I need to get better at doing that. Do you think having told me you'll be much better at it now or you'll just be more aware of yourself? At least I'm aware that I'm micromanaging and I don't need to. It is still tough to let go. I just Mm. want to know. And it's also tough because a lot of my time now is being spent on non-developing. It's not coding, not developing. It's spent on fundraising and hiring and sales. But what I actually enjoy is building and developing. So it's hard to dissociate myself from that. Okay. What is your earliest or most vivid memory? I think around the time that my brother was born. I have the whole visual in my head. We were eating and then something happened. There was some activity and then I was like, oh, that's my brother, that's my brother, that's my brother talking. I remember that. Wow, cool. <laughs> yeah, I never had a younger sibling to experience what it was like. It's great. You get like a free minion. They're young, you get to experiment everything crazy. I mean, my, my brother's adorable and when he was younger, he would thought I was the source of truth. So I could get him to do whatever. I misutilized that power. And- nice. Yeah, you sound a bit like my sister. <laughs> she definitely <laughs> did those things. Cool. Do you have any questions you want to ask me? What is the most interesting answer that you got on your podcast? I guess there's been some really amazing life lessons and tips. And probably the thing that stuck with me the most is when I asked a hitman how much he got paid for killing people and it was $1,000. That's not enough money for someone's life. I mean, you can't even have a funeral in the UK for $1,000. Why is he willing to do it for $1,000? didn't want to be a hitman who was pressured into becoming one, otherwise he would be dead himself. Okay. You can see how it happened rather than, oh, someone's offering a thousand dollars, cool, I'll just go and kill someone. How did you get a hitman to come on your podcast? I found some people that were doing cool stuff hacking into banks and they were in the dark web and they introduced me. Interesting. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think I should ask? No, I think you covered most of it, my mm. life and Aquan. So your business partner is your little brother. Is he worry about that, having both of you running the business? Or is that actually a really nice thing? No, I think it's great. I couldn't have asked for a better co-founder. I hope my brother doesn't listen to the podcast because I never say good things to him on his face. <laughs> but there are some co-founder issues like trust. Is this person going to backstab me? Are we doing enough? Is the other person putting enough effort? Are they even capable? We don't have any of those issues at all. We're stuck mm. with each other for life. And I think given that we haven't stopped talking in the last 27, 26 years, I think we're pretty okay. We do fight, but we fought so much already that I think we've just gotten used to fighting. So we're fine. We do have different points of view. It's not like one dominates over the other. And we do argue, but always end up coming to an agreement in the end. 
I trust him more than anyone else. I completely, completely trust him. I know he's always got my back. I know he's never going to do anything that is going to harm me. I know exactly how capable he is, exactly how smart he is, what he can do, what he cannot do, which is a big relief. There's no one else that I could have worked with at that level of comfort and honesty and trust. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So that was Chandini. What a delight to have her on the podcast. We had a quite an interesting conversation afterwards, which I sadly did not record. But she told me about her issues in childhood where she had to kind of learn how to play with others and just have conversations with normal people about normal things when she really just wasn't interested in that when she was younger. And I can imagine it being super hard when your peers are all talking about movies and what shoes to wear and you're there thinking like, I want to change the world with data or let's talk about math. It's been a nightmare. Eventually, she realized that other people are kind of important and that she needed to listen to them to talk about like mundane things first to actually get them to open up and then talk about more meaningful things. And I can also see how this would relate to her problems with letting go of the management stuff of her business and getting people to do things for her when she was just used to having all her ideas and being able to execute on them really fast and having to explain them to others who maybe misinterpret them or do it slower must be really annoying and a challenge. And I think this is a wider problem for any entrepreneur, really. But to scale yourself, you really do need to learn to let go, which is going to be my first top tip. Don't micromanage. It's just so hard to let go of your baby, whether you're a mother of a child or a CEO with a business. But at some point, you need to let go of the full control and let it learn to take care of itself so it can do so much more than it could with just you purely driving it. Number two, do market research. It might not be fun or feel like progress and you often will find that you are wrong and that's not a nice thing, but you do need to change your precious idea to make sure that actually fits the rest of the world. Otherwise, you're just working on something that is really nice in your head and you're just making it be the way you want it to be in your head. And so you're never actually validating your idea with the world and you're just wasting your time. So do market research properly and you could save yourself a bunch of time and money, even if it doesn't feel nice and is annoying when you feel like you're going backwards. Number three, practice. Talk to as many people about your idea as possible and every time you do, it'll just get better and more cemented in your own head and it will just come out more cleanly and people will understand it better. And you just never know who might put you in touch with someone else. So the more people you talk to, the more chances you give yourself. And now on to books. Oh, we didn't actually discuss any books in the podcast, which is probably for the best because this year, even though we're two months in, I've already read 20 books and this is great. Every time I speak to someone else about books, they have a long list of books I've never heard of. And the whole gravity of how many books there are in the world is sinking into me finally. And I'm like, wow, I'm never, ever going to read all the books. There's too many amazing books out there and it's kind of a bit overwhelming right now. But I can say one book I really enjoyed was the Andrew Carnegie is the famous billionaire. Yeah, he's basically like a real life story of the Dale Carnegie's book about how to win friends and influence people. He essentially just learned all these lessons through his life and explains them in story format as opposed to Dale Carnegie's formula format. So yeah, I feel like Dale Carnegie basically just went through Andrew's book and found all of the things that he was talking about and ripped him off. Yeah, anyway, that's a good book. So I can recommend that to you. And then on the podcast next week, we have Matt Brady, the former CMO of Just Eat. And yeah, he's a crazy interesting guy. He joined the company 
when they were a few years old, they're just starting to get some traction in Europe. Just Eats this huge business across Europe, if you are unaware, in America. I think they're launched in America now. Anyway, they grew to IPO in many billions. And yeah, anyway, Matt joined them when they were like getting going. And then he was like the fuel on the fire in terms of coming on as their marketing exec. And he made the brand the brand that is today. Yeah, he really was a cool guy. And um, if you ever saw the Don't Cook, Just Eat campaign, that was entirely his creation, which was an awesome campaign. So listen next week for some top tips to how to take a company from going all right to taking over the world because he knows how to tell a good story and how to make it happen. And on that note, thank you very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast.